Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Enjoy stories with a twist. Enjoy the unexpected. How about the right or wrong podcast? That's writer, just a little clever play on words for a show that likes to keep listeners on their toes. The Right or Wrong podcast is a chapter-based fiction series that invites audiences to participate in the craft of storytelling. With a focus on original tales of the unexpected, host Patrick Emil provides listeners with stimulating audio narratives every two weeks, discusses the plot with a number of enthralling co-hosts, and eventually offers the listeners their chance at voting for their choice of two separate paths. Whichever ending they get the next episode is based on the audience's favorite choice. Available on all major podcast platforms, as well as writerwrongpodcast.com. Again, that's writer with a W, writerwrongpodcast.com. Tune in for season two, coming in late February, 2021. You are listening to Devil We Know, a true crime podcast, which may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode of Devil We Know, two men from different backgrounds each plan separate robberies and wind up killing someone to earn their place in the largest maximum security prison in New York, Clinton Correctional Facility. New York is a state of variety, from the prehistoric glacial formation of the Finger Lakes, which are home to a vast and teeming wine country, or the capital district surrounding Albany that, as of recent years, focuses on high-tech-driven cultural and economic pursuits. New York is a landmass which covers many different varieties of climates, cultures, and ways of life. Mountain towns nestled in Upper Appalachia, the high-energy bustle of metropoli like Manhattan Island, and even cities on the various rivers and lakes of the upstate and western regions all ensure that no matter where you're from in New York, it's bound to feel different when you drive an hour or two in any direction across the state. Take the region known as Western New York, for example. Housing Buffalo and just a stone's throw away from the world-famous Niagara Falls, Western New York is known for its humid continental climate, mimicking that of other Great Lakes cities like Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, or Cleveland. Offering great and fruitful growing periods and comfortable summers, 
despite the long, cold winters that could even intensify the effect of snow before and after the season. Western New York, too, is home to another intense experience that proved historic for the 19th century. Spiritualism, breeding a renaissance of soothsayers, palm readers, and seances, began here. In Lilydale, found by traveling southwest along the shore of Lake Erie from Buffalo, this movement never ceased to find root. In fact, Lilydale is hailed for its status as one of the largest spiritualist communities in the United States. If you believe the tales, it may even be the most psychic town in America. This area of New York State also became a part of the Rust Belt, a century after spiritualism took hold, becoming important for processing grain and coal and for transport. But due to the improvement of the canal systems in the area, the area just as quickly saw the effects of deindustrialization. The hardworking people of Western New York feel used and abused as abandoned steel mills and other sources of economic decline became prominent. Not everything dwindled, though. Tonawanda, a town in the Buffalo suburbs, is home to a General Motors that serves as the largest vehicle engine plant in the world to date. And there is, of course, a vast set of food traditions miles wide in the region, most notably the chicken wings that are named for Buffalo itself. And it's not just Western New York that makes its own impression and difference in the state. The New York Southern Tier region, which is a twin to the neighboring Pennsylvania Northern Tier, houses mainly hilly lands as part of the Appalachian Range. With the Catskill Mountains of Delaware County notably standing out above these as a haven for the Bohemians of New York State. The Twin Tiers region of New York and Pennsylvania, marked by glacial valleys, stark plateaus, and hilly regions carried with it, much like many other regions of New York, a rich history of Native American heritage. The diverse and at times rugged land was forced out of Native American hands by the ways of treaties and war alike, making the dissected plateaus of the region with their multicolored waterfall cliffs oddly symbolic of the land's history. The region's troubled past, rich landscape, and regional food and burgeoning art scene, like in Binghamton, make this place all the more diverse. It's the birthplace of the Speedy, a spit-roasted sandwich of marinated meats more widely enjoyed in central New York. It's also the carousel capital of the world, housing six of the remaining antique carousels made before 1930. This area is also home to a steady economy first supported by the growth of the railroads, and with the nearby founding of IBM and the invention of the flight simulator right there in Binghamton, this area of Newark became a home to invention and technological firms, earning it the nickname, the Valley of Opportunity. So it's come to be that Southern Tier, much like Western New York, has fashioned for itself a unique identity. But among the uniqueness, there are still categorical similarities, both with historical homes of Native American tribes like the Iroquois, and both share distinct Northern U.S. dialects. Both are, of course, in New York, too. But as I said, New York is a state of variety. While good people of all kinds, hardworking, honest people, city folk, town folk, and rural folk alike, all come from New York in various places across the state, there is another truth. Just like anywhere, this variety means that New York has its share of people making bad decisions too. And some of these people, with all the decisions that weigh them down, wind up trapped by their own mess. People like Richard Matt and David Sweat. Richard Matt, or Ricky as he was known by the state in the years to come, wasn't a man with a historically stable life or a stable home. Born on June 26th of 1966, Ricky, alongside his brother, 
Robert, actually experienced their fair share of trouble in their own home life, with Ricky himself as a mere infant being left inside a car alone at one point. His father, Robert Matt Sr., lived a criminal life full of theft and violence, and he's now believed to be dead. Eventually, Ricky and Robert Jr. became foster children. It was fair to say, at least, that Ricky's life was full of issues from the start, though not much of it could be said to stem from the transient existence most kids have in foster care. See, Ricky and his brother were lucky that Mr. and Mrs. Vern Eden found them quite early on, and the two brothers were able to make a life in the Eden home of Tonawanda in New York's Erie County for a time until finally finding themselves stuck in a youth home yet again. Unlike those with similar stories and backgrounds, though, Ricky didn't suffer at the hands of his fellow students. In fact, he found himself quite popular, and his intellect excelled. However, despite his early successes in some of the most crucial developmental periods, otherwise known as elementary school and high school, Ricky wasn't like other kids of his ilk. His special breeds of smarts and popularity came mixed with a mean streak, and it was said that from his earliest interactions and onward, that Ricky terrorized his peers, even on the school bus. Randy Zucala, a denizen of North Tonawanda, was technically one of Ricky's contemporaries in age, and even shared his knowledge of the young Ricky Matt in later years, when Ricky started facing some very serious charges. Quote, Friends of mine knew him. He would just terrorize people. Even in elementary and junior high, he had issues. End quote. Due to the closeness of North Tonawanda and Tonawanda, it was easy for word to travel between them, and friendships, as well as the darkest of rumors, easily passed between the two towns as well. It was from this combination of traits that family and friends alike came to know Ricky and describe him as charming, brutal, and savagely brilliant. At the age of 14, Ricky had run away from his group home, and he had landed himself in juvenile detention. He had apparently made a mistake of trying to steal a houseboat, only to escape authorities by riding off on a stolen horse. It was this attitude, this cinematic flair to his horrendous deeds, that earned him infamy early on, and likely fed into his later antics. Ricky made a name for himself in Tonawanda, to be sure. In fact, a police captain named Frederick Foles remembered his time as a beat cop during the years of Ricky's young adulthood, and could recount easily the interactions that he had with Ricky. Frederick remembered that starting in 1985, Ricky began racking up charges of all sorts, among them being misdemeanor harassment. However, that was the low rung of the ladder. Ricky also managed to accrue other charges, such as unlawful weapons possession or even assault in the second degree, as Frederick recalled. Quote, One time he beat up a girl pretty bad. He got charged for assault. That's a felony. But the things that he was charged with later in life, wow. End quote. The matter of things a criminal would have to do for a police captain to simply say, wow, is a laundry list of in itself. But Ricky's case is by far more egregious and more concerning than those of the usual suspects. Early on, Ricky may have been known as a troublemaker and a small-time thug, but in time, he proved to be capable of much, much worse. Starting in 1986, he became known for and charged for rape, and when he was convicted of this first instance, he was sentenced to serve a year in the Erie County Correctional Facility. But his penchant for escape was tested here without a ready-to-steal-horse waiting by. Due to a mistake made by a guard, Ricky was able to slip out of his cell, climb a nine-foot metal wall topped with razor wire, 
from which he earned forearm scars he proudly touted in later years. After fleeing the premises, he hopped a freight train, and though he could have gotten out of Dodge, he instead was found only five days later in Tonawanda, at his brother's apartment. The strangest and most foreboding thing about his discovery, though, was the axe handle he gripped tightly inside the residence, almost alluding to the loss of the head somewhere along his journey. It wasn't long after his conviction and trip to prison that Ricky committed the same crime again, but this time, it didn't stick. Although he committed rape, the victim in question was testified to have been intoxicated. While this is not always an issue, this time it was, because the victim turned out to be too intoxicated to provide sufficient evidence to back her claims of rape. Ricky's rocky life, full of violent crimes to those around him, didn't stop there. He brought it home with him. Even he, in the span of his years leading up to 1991, and actually thereafter, was considered charming when he wanted to be. A retired detective from the area told the media later on that this criminal, whose strengths included burglary and violence to a great degree, also remembered his charisma, saying that when he deemed to clean up, he's a very handsome and in all frankness, very well endowed. He gets girlfriends any place he goes, end quote. Ricky found this to his advantage when he took a liking to a woman who came to be the mother of his child, a woman named V. Marie Harris. Ricky's son, Nick, later recalled that his father left an impression that lingers with you. He then described how he won over V in the early days. Quote, he had a crush on my mother and would say to her, if I were older, would you be my girl? He would lower his head and kick his foot against the ground when he asked. She would tell him he was so young. But then she met him later when he was in his 20s, and he was a good-looking guy. They started dating, and she got pregnant with End quote. Somehow, this man, this meek and seemingly in-love young kid, became the violent and calculating rapist and robber that the police knew as Ricky. Even Nick has memories of Ricky that line up with his dark persona as well. And in fact, in October of 1991, Ricky showed how much of that darkness was willing to come home with him. On the night of the 14th, when Nick was just an infant, Ricky broke into V's place and beat her, even stabbing her. And yet, Nick remembers how Ricky was also very interested in nurturing a relationship with his son. Despite Nick's spurns, these two sides of Ricky were troubling in their disparate nature. But that wasn't all there was to his story. As expected, Ricky was held on felony assault and weapons possession charges for the attack on Nick's mother. He was brought to Erie County Holding Center in Buffalo for these crimes, but he flexed his skills and speechcraft yet again to work a fellow inmate, David Telstar. This adopted socialite had been locked away for embezzling against his wife, who was much higher class than the Minnesotan graphic designer. But Telstar, a swarmy white man lacking physical prowess in a predominantly black cell block, was reportedly going to see no end to the hostility until Ricky stepped in to act as a peacemaker. He was grateful, of course, and like Ricky, Telstar was hungry for what he thought was due to him, and so they struck a deal. Telstar would pay Ricky's bail, a total of $15,000 in cash, along with another $100,000 for a special task in exchange. Telstar wanted Ricky to do away with his own wife, Desiree, along with her parents and the family lawyer, all of whose influence in Los Angeles would go far if Desiree were to suddenly turn up dead. This may or may not have been the birth of a whole new career for Ricky, but regardless of what was to come, he agreed wholeheartedly with Telstar, even agreeing to burn the victim's bodies when he was done. 
This man of violence, thanks to a frightening deal, had eventually warmed his way back onto the streets, where his reign of terror only continued. In 1995, Ricky was working a B&E when he was apprehended and placed in front of a parole board. The man had a plethora of chances, only to yet again be caught in the cycle of crime that fed his record. The resounding question the board had, to an understandable degree, was simply, why? Ricky had an answer for this, though, and he played the board like a violin. He said to them, some guy hired me to kill his wife and three other people while I was in jail. He controlled the narrative by painting himself as heroic, a victimized soul who wouldn't dare kill the people in question. I wasn't planning on killing no one, he stated, seemingly in earnest to the board meeting with that day. He claimed that this agreement was put upon and that he'd planned to end the scheme the whole time, even telling the board that when he left Erie County, he alerted Desiree to the danger, saying something to the effect, look, you know this guy bailed me out of jail. He put a hit on you. Upon hearing this, the parole board changed their tune, and soon the FBI put him to work as an informant on Telstar, even allowing him to act as a star witness in the proceedings to follow. Ricky's convincing pleas for help also mentioned that, because of his refusal to actually execute the plan, he was living in fear in the prison where he was now being held. He claimed that he survived a botched shanking attributed to Telstar, though allegations couldn't be proven. It wasn't a far-fetched consideration, though. Telstar had not been shy about his wealth, and he had made a spectacle of himself in prison during his time there that makes it seem almost likely that he simply hired more than one killer. Desiree, too, found it easy to believe, and when she was questioned, her thoughts came back to the Minnesota-born man's proclivity for both keeping guns in the house and for threatening her life, particularly if she tried to leave him. Desiree, almost 60 at the time, no doubt feared for her life from Telstar long before he put out a hit on her. The lengths to which Telstar went, though, were thoroughly documented from his normal embezzlement to the involvement of his coke dealer, who later ordered his own relatives to cart around the money Telstar had squirreled away in Genevan bank accounts. The dealer and his relatives each did hard time for their involvement, and Telstar himself, who pled guilty, only received five years when Ricky helped to put him away. Eventually, Telstar found a new life, a new wife, and blotted some ink on his resume to glaze over his absence from the workforce. Ricky, though, had more of his life to give to the state, all due to the events of a cold winter in 1997. A businessman named William Rickerson had hired Ricky some time before now. But come winter, William had told Ricky his employment was terminated, thanks to his acts of thievery and other activities on the clock. Ricky was now jobless, and he became somewhat obsessed, obviously experiencing anger to a vast degree, but also another emotion, greed. He'd convinced himself that his former boss was sitting on a large sum of cash, and he eventually coerced or convinced an accomplice, 21-year-old Lee Bates, to get in on the action. Coercion wasn't out of the question there, as another one of Ricky's exes, Johanna Capretto, compared the two men, Ricky would dominate, as she put it, while she described Lee as pretty much a follower. Detectives later agreed with this assessment. However, to whatever degree, Lee still became a part of the operation, which was meant to be a simple robbery. However, when William had nothing to offer initially, it became clear to Ricky that more extreme pressures would be needed in order to get what he wanted. The duo cracked open Lee's car trunk and stuffed a gagged and bound William in there. Donning only his pajamas, from North Tonawanda all the way to Ohio, and back they drove. 
and periodically they would stop so that Ricky could attempt to beat the information out of him. Ricky was so sure that the money was there, and William could only offer up groans of pain in response. And at one point, Ricky decided to pull back William's fingers to break them. Then Ricky took William's life by snapping his neck with his own two hands. If Lee wasn't scared into submission before, that definitely would cement the sentiment for him now. But Ricky's murder went under the radar for a time. For days, William was considered missing, but when police checked his home, they found only some blood, but no body. That kind of distinction was odd for them, but they gathered what little evidence they could. They could make no real moves before a fisherman found pieces of a dead human body running ashore. The pieces, as was later determined, belonged to William. Weeks passed, and soon Ricky was on the doorstep of his stepbrother, Wayne Schimpf. Wayne admitted to finding his appearance upsetting, undoubtedly at least in some part due to the look of a murderer in a face that, as many have noted, is the spitting image of his own. Nevertheless, he talked Ricky through his actions, the murder he just committed. Apparently, he'd taken William's body to Tutanawanda Island with Lee, and later he returned on his own to cut up the body and dump it into the river. Wayne couldn't believe the story, and he had questions. Quote, are you for real? How'd you do it? End quote. He asked whether Ricky used a chainsaw to commit the act, to which Ricky grinned hauntingly with his reply, <laughs> a hacksaw. But Ricky hadn't just shown up to swap stories. He was in trouble. He told Wayne, and if his fate depended on him, he asked to borrow his car after all. He needed to get out of town way out. Wayne refused, at first, only for Ricky to respond with another doomed statement. Quote, you're my brother, you're my blood. I love you, but I'll kill you. End quote. With that, Wayne knew he was telling the truth about the dangerous act, and that it wasn't going to be the last time. If he saw it as his only way out, so Wayne made copies of his car key, and Ricky was on his way south to Texas where he crossed the Rio Grande using Wayne's identity and car, a fact that didn't raise any eyebrows, since they looked so much alike. So there he lived in Mexico for a time afterward, and just around this time, the investigation into the death of William had begun to pin Ricky, as he predicted, as most likely to be the culprit. However, despite being far removed from the New York Justice Department and their investigation, Ricky's vacation didn't last long as he found himself causing trouble south of the border. During a robbery he attempted outside a strip club, Ricky was once again brandishing weapons, this time killing an American man in a whole other country. He wasn't tried by the Mexican justice system, but he was held for his crime, serving his time in prison there. But he was, in a word, unwanted. Ricky tried to even escape the Mexican prison, and he made it all the way up to the roof before he was shot in the shoulder and apprehended once more. This was yet another scar, though, that he proudly carried and showed to his son, Nick, on at least one occasion, leaving Nick with a firm but frightening impression given all his scars and run-ins with the law. Ricky had indeed proven such a difficult prisoner for the Mexican government that in 2007, they sent him alongside a cartel kingpin who'd been extradited for his crimes against the U.S. In Texas, the two criminals deplaned, and the officials were floored, as they'd received no communication regarding Ricky's arrival. They suddenly had one more dangerous man on their hands, and soon, Ricky was back up in New York, and in a 2008 testimony, Lee shared his account of the events that happened a decade ago to William Rickerson. Ricky, dressed in a stunned belt and stylish suit donated by a friend, even shocked his own lawyer 
with the charisma he carried, and as a result of his physical strength and cunning, the courts used the stun belt and other changes to ensure that he could not escape. They removed the glass covering from the courtroom in case it could be used as a weapon and ordered double the usual number of guards presiding over the affairs. There was even a trained marksman, a sniper watching over the courthouse as a final measure, proving the state really aimed to take every precaution in Ricky's case. He could not, in so many words, be overestimated. Still, with all of this in place, there was a trial to be had, and when Lee had the floor, his words bought him a lesser sentence in exchange for a clarity in regard to Ricky's role in the murder. Thanks to this moving account, the four weeks total of testimony and the evidence found in pieces that remained of William, a jury wasted no time in making their decision. In the state's favor, the jury agreed on a verdict only a few hours into the trial, and the judge confirmed that her own sentence to the effect was, frankly, not a difficult decision. Ricky, thanks to his egregious acts, had earned himself 25 years to life, the maximum sentence for his crime of murder in the second degree. In the hopes of putting his life of crime to an end, Ricky was eventually transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Danamora, New York. Devil We Know is sponsored by Podcorn, the amazing marketplace designed to help podcasters of all sizes get sponsored the way they want. I've been using Podcorn for a couple weeks now. It's real easy. You just log on, scroll through the many advertisers, send them a message why your podcast would be great to advertise on, and then you're off to the races. Creative control and transparency are the name of the game. Podcorn believes in leaving power in the hands of the creatives, and with their vast marketplace of sponsors with different needs, it's easy for any podcaster to find the deal that works best for them. Start with Podcorn now by following the link in our show notes and find a sponsor today. Just go to podcorn.com to get started. But Ricky Matt wasn't a lone agent of chaos in the state of New York. Another man, David Sweat, did much to earn his eventual place in prison as well. David, who was born in Deposit, New York, in June of 1980, depended on a single mother, Pam, and his sisters for a modicum of early family life. But it was, according to sources, an undisciplined home. Pam didn't really keep herself in check, for one, with a chaotic home life that included numerous boyfriends, several live-in guests, and a whole lot of drinking and weed. David and his sister Tilly enjoyed very little emotional attention from their mother during this time who'd much rather spend it with Carl Butts, one of the boyfriends that was most consistently present during the tumultuous time. Though it was clear from accounts of the bygone live-in guests that Pam was not good with David, who was believed to be a good kid with a temper tantrum from time to time, sure, but not considered anything serious. Given that he had a right to lash out in the eyes of those who saw Pam's neglect, Carl picked up on this too. And one more telling sign of David's corruption came when Carl tried to make up for the mistakes of his girlfriend. He offered David gifts, toys to be exact, on several occasions, but David's reception was violent each time, in that he'd either burn the toys or simply smash them with a hammer. 
Ham too recalls seeing wickedness in David from an early age, saying, quote, He has tormented me since he was nine years old. End quote. When she says he started playing with knives, it was true that David had developed a keen interest in collecting knives. But after a year of being bullied in school, it's said that he brought a butcher knife to the school and earned himself a suspension. His mother claims that this is where his anger began to grow and that David even began throwing knives at her and at the furniture. He reportedly heaved a rocking chair at her too. And though he never managed to hurt her much physically, her claims to emotional and psychological pain are great. She calls them immeasurable even. To gain a better understanding of David and his home life, Pam offered information on the school he supposedly attended. However, officials that looked into it found that while David and his family supposedly lived in Bingington, just an hour drive from deposit, there was no evidence that David ever attended the school Pam named. In fact, there was no record of David in that school district or any of the neighboring districts, again calling her neglect into question. She claims, though, that her son was verbally abusive even at a young age and that this had a direct negative effect on her personal health. She reportedly experienced two nervous breakdowns before eventually deciding that David's behavior was intolerable, whereupon she sent him down to Florida. There, David lived with his aunt and his uncle, and David himself began exhibiting symptoms of anxiety as well. As a result, his reaction to the move proved just as troublesome, if not more so, than his life back in New York. Not long after his departure, he commandeered his aunt's car, obviously without her permission, and wrecked it. David, much like Ricky, eventually found himself in a foster home with his sister, where the sister claims he regularly made runaway attempts. Back in deposit once again, David also picked up where he left off in his escalation of crimes, beginning life now as a drug dealer. Given the erratic nature of David's actions and Pam's need to get away from him, she never learned if he attended high school. However, the school of hard knocks was in full swing for David as he began his stints in correctional facilities. This occurred in part from a heist he planned at age 16, which resulted in him boosting cash and computers from a local youth group home. His plan was detailed and thorough enough that even another teenage idiot, as the judge later called them, went along as an accomplice. David's thoroughness included blueprints of the group home to reference and a plan to tie up and lock up the lady working there that night to steal the goods as they went. Despite all the planning, though, the two were eventually seen in their ski masks and caught. When forced to discuss the crime at length, David chose to say that his actions were because he watched a lot of television and because it would make him look better to his friends, whom he admitted were troublemakers. The response to this in itself was planned, and was partly why David and his buddy only received a slap on the wrist. Five years, intensive supervision probation. Wasting no time at all, David started working alongside his cousin, Jeffrey Nabinger Jr., to commit his detailed criminal hauls. Their mother, who were sisters, were not the only easy bond between them. David and Jeffrey also were the same age, so they acted more like brothers together, and they didn't have steady jobs, so they often stayed in cars. David and Jeffrey both sold pot in order to feed themselves, but since David loved to smoke, their goods didn't always last long enough to reach the hands of any customers. After dealing with these conditions for a while, eventually Jeffrey was able to land a place to live, and due to David's planning, there was going to be an opportunity to live it up after all. That's when David and Jeffrey broke in and burglarized the property of Jeffrey's landlady, and the two were convicted of second-degree burglary. 
A sentence of two to four years. David's first stint in prison was shorter than that, of course. It wasn't uneventful, though. As his 19 months were spent plotting in his cell with another planned set of crimes on a to-do list of sorts. For David, it was never too early to think up your next big scheme. When he finally was considered for parole, he mentioned that he wanted to take mail courses to become a mechanic. In this qualification that proved him ready for the real world once more, and soon he was out of jail and into the arms of his girlfriend, the oldest daughter of that bygone family acquaintance, Patricia Desmond. He spent many days with her at her place, but on other days, his time was spent in stolen cars out of the nearby woods, where he could think up his next schemes alongside other fellow lowlifes. By the time David was 22, he was ready for more big trouble, and this time, it came to bite him where it hurt. July 3rd, 2002, David met Jeffrey at a place called One Dirt Road. Together, they planned with a young man by the name of Sean Duvall, and the three discussed their next heist. They had mapped out a fireworks and firearms shop, They were going to grab as many firearms, many, many firearms. The goal was simple. Even spelled out for them, David had circled on the store's floor plan what items were going to be stolen. From there, the three agreed on the plan and executed it a day later, Independence Day, heading south of the state border to Halstead, Pennsylvania. There, they stole a pickup truck and drove it to Mess's Fireworks in Great Bend, not two minutes away. The three donned masks and prepped guns while Jeffrey drove the truck straight into the front door of the shop. They canvassed the store as planned, with duffel bags eventually housing dozens of guns and knives of various types to be divvied up between them. The trio drove the truck back up to Kirkwood, New York, nearly 10 minutes away, and were in Grange Hall Park to plan their division of the goods when they were spotted. A Broome County Sheriff deputy named Kevin Tarcia saw the three robbers at four in the morning. Kevin, working the night shift all alone, lived just up the road. Parking at an angle, he shined his spotlight at two vehicles through the dense fog. Two of the men looked up and then ran into a cluster of trees while David dove underneath the truck. Kevin approached the trio and David responded violently, shooting Kevin 22 times. Kevin, bleeding out on a parking lot pavement, was soon terminated when Dave got in his car and drove over Kevin, making sure he was dead. Then he and his cousin both grabbed Kevin's handgun and flares, fleeing the scene and leaving Kevin's body to be discovered later that morning. His life is now celebrated every year on July 4th. It was yet another horrendous loss at the hands of a New York State crime spree. Kevin was also the first ever deputy sheriff in Broome County to die in the line of duty, protecting his community since the department's foundation in 1806. It was not much later after this robbery murder, two days in fact, when a witness aided the authorities with a tip, and David and his two partners in crime were arrested for their heinous actions. David's girlfriend also assisted the authorities in nailing David for the crime. Though the death penalty in New York is no longer lawful, this whole string of crimes could have ended that way that year, if it weren't for the fact that David and Jeffrey both pled guilty as advised, instead earning life sentences. For David... This time, there was no chance of good behavior to earn him a spot in society again. He was transported to Danamora at Clinton to serve his time for life without parole. Though the two men's twisted lives left them on the doorstep of Clinton Correctional Facility, their lives had yet to play out fully. It was there that Ricky Matt and David Sweat learned how just similar the two of them were. You see, it's not about what makes people different. 
that draws them together. It's about what makes them the same. Two men from different portions of the state of New York made their lives revolve around theft, assault, rape, murder, and the need to continually serve these desires. And so far it had steered them wrong every time. It's hard to see past the facades too. Some people put on the mask that makes them similar to us to keep us from learning the dark truths of their past or the heavy weights they carry now, if they carry any at all. Some people, unburdened by conscience, just use the mask to their advantage. And maybe that's what it looks like when we say, the devil we know. Thanks for so much for listening to this episode of Devil We Know. This is a two-part series, um, so check out the next one when it comes out here in the next couple days. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Devil We Know Podcast or on Twitter at Devil We Know Pod. If you like this episode, give us a five-star review on our show on Apple Podcasts or show support by giving us a thumbs up, five-star, or a smiley face, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by me, Aaron. Research was done by Sammy Taylor, and writing and additional research were completed by David Wayne Young. This episode was edited by Chase Gray. Thanks, everybody. As usual, keep your head on a swivel.